Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for man. <laughs> Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life, legacy and legend of Napoleon Bonaparte as we debate whether he was a ruthless tyrant or the greatest Frenchman of all time. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we explored how revolutionary ideas were translated into landscape design, found out about the struggle for change in the UK in the 1960s and the 1970s and investigated the contradictions in economic nationalism. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. General. We are discovered. Good. I'm not built like other men. Generals gathered in their masses. Move along now. Those in power only see me as a brute, unfit for higher office. Just like witches at black masses. But I follow in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and Caesar. I must warn you, I will not lead a second in command. I will win by fire. I am destined for greatness. When questioned about the historical accuracy of the trailer for his forthcoming film on Napoleon, the director Ridley Scott responded by telling historians to get a life. Napoleon is apparently the second most filmed figure of all time after Jesus Christ and the new film promises to tell his life story through his tortured love affair with his wife Josephine as well as his master plan to conquer Europe. To some, Napoleon was a ruthless tyrant and dictator. To others, the greatest Frenchman of all time. And so in tonight's show, we want to explore the life, legacy and legend of Napoleon in advance of the release of the film as we explore our fascination with the man who made himself emperor. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Sylvie Kleinman is a visiting research fellow at the Department of History at Trinity College Dublin and has researched Wolf Tone's military career in France and his dealings with Napoleon Bonaparte from a French perspective. Professor Hugh Goff is Emeritus Professor of History at University College Dublin and is an expert on revolutionary France. Dr. Rafe Blofarb is a specialist in revolutionary and Napoleonic France and Professor of History and Ben Weeder, eminent scholar in Napoleonic studies at Florida State University. And his books include Napoleon, a symbol for an Age. Dr. Joseph Clark is the head of the Department of History at Trinity College Dublin and is an expert on the culture and politics of memory in 18th century France. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. But Hugh, we might begin with you. And this big question about how Napoleon is seen today, because to some he is a, a dictator, a tyrant, you know, a terrible figure. And then to others, he's the greatest Frenchman of all time. He's a hero, a revolutionary, an iconic figure. So, which is it? 
I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. I think the secret of Napoleon is the fact that he, he seizes power because he seized power in the coup d'etat in late 1799. He seizes power in the middle of the French Revolution. And the French Revolution was really a dividing line in European history, which um, brought forward a series of values to do with liberty, democracy, national identity, which polarized Europe into for and against. He comes to power in the middle of that, and in a way, he represents the revolutionary line. Uh, not so much liberty, but certainly equality, and certainly the idea of promotion of people on merit. So to that extent, Napoleon really embodies principles which were to divide Europe for much of the 19th and 20th century. In a way, he's the inheritor of the revolution. He always proclaimed that he was, in as much as he kept ideas such as written constitutions, equality before the law, and the promotion roughly on merit. I wouldn't go too far down that line, but roughly on merit. And he spread them through his military conquests throughout much of Europe. That, in a way, um, aroused opposition against those ideas which were already um, existing in France and spread that opposition to much of Europe. So out of Napoleon come, on the one hand, the ideas of liberty, a certain element of democracy, constitutional government, and the opposition to Napoleon is based on national identity and the idea of continuity in social and political life which links people back to the monarchy. So he's very much a polarizing figure, but he's on a mega scale because really if you're looking at the last 250 years of European history, no one person has shaken Europe up so much and therefore created that polarized view which we still inherit today. And Sylvie, I think there is an impression that he's universally loved in France, but I suppose his reputation is is equally divided and divided in France because some love him, some don't love him, and others are maybe in the middle again uh, when it comes to him. Well, we revisited him, as you all remember, in and around the centenary of Waterloo. We were in this studio, and it's interesting that we're back here because of a cultural element, a film, so I'm only half French. And just like John Paul Kaufman, the journalist who'd been a hostage in Lebanon for many years, many, many years ago, when he was released and he began to be adventurous in life because of his experience, he went to St. Helena and he said, like many Frenchmen, I have an abhorrence of Napoleon slightly being shoved down my throat, but I decided, let me explore it. Let me learn more about him. So... It is true that, unlike what British or American people think, in France, Napoleon divides people. He, he challenges us a lot. And, you know, as we were chatting earlier, Joseph made the point, in France, particularly recently, Macron, there was a, a ceremony, and it was a bit more muted uh, than one would imagine. I think the point that Hugh made um, first of all, Napoleon also symbolized, I hope you agree, centralized power. And he was also a symbolic figurehead becoming the emperor. So he had all the trappings of power in one human being who becomes almost, uh, you know, an ubermensch um, politically, ceremonially, and very importantly, the military figure, the military strategist. And I think that fascinates people as well, including the people who defeated him. 
Joe, it's interesting when we talk about how he's remembered, it's it's hard to separate the memory of Napoleon from the propaganda of the time because you had this, you know, huge propaganda against him, calling him a monster and this, you know, uh, brutal figure who was trying to take over Europe and the world. And then and then I suppose the, the pro-Napoleonic propaganda, which had him as the great hero and liberator. And, you know, some of these debates continue on still to the present. Oh, absolutely. Patrick, um, so much of what we think about Napoleon, or all of our images of Napoleon are derived from that propaganda that's generated at the time. You think of those extraordinary paintings by uh, Jacques-Louis David who, of Napoleon crossing the Alps on this rearing charger when we know in reality he crosses it muffled up in a duffel coat on a, on a donkey. Um, so there's this terrific, he's a terrific manipulator of his own image. He's an extraordinary uh, gift for self-propagandizing uh, for for promoting, creating his own myth. And that myth has is, is persisted with us uh, today. And then conversely, on the other side, we have uh, this vast array of, of um, imagery and, and, and written um, critiques of him appearing uh, across so much of Europe. And uh, I suppose we're most familiar with the, the imagery that's generated in Britain and, and that characteristic image of Little Boney uh, that uh, Gilray, the great British satirical cartoonist, creates. And, and, and you know, that image of a sort of a, a, a manic, demented, uh, power-crazed little, uh, little monster uh, that becomes, again, part of, embedded in, in our, our understanding of, of what, what Napoleon looks like. Uh, I think that's a large part of why we were, uh, so, so, many, so many people refer to him as exceptionally short. He wasn't exceptionally short. He's slightly under average height, but Gilray has left us that legacy. So we have the, these, these very polarized um, uh, visual representations of him, seizing the crown to crown himself uh, in Notre Dame in 1804, um, uh, the, 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 the dashing young general of the, of the late 1790s, early, early 1800s, and then you know, this rather surlier figure that emerges in, in so many paintings. And, and these images, allied to literary representations, uh, keep recurring again and again uh, throughout the 19th century because, as you said, he, his, his political legacy remains such a live a live thing. Um, so in all of these ways, culturally, he's, he's creating, he's forging, both he and his opponents are forging this myth of Napoleon as either the, the, uh, the, the citizen emperor on the one hand or the, the Corsican ogre that appears in so much uh, British, British propaganda of the time. And Rafe, it's fascinating the way there have been so many films about Napoleon and again, so many attempted films. Charlie Chaplin wanted to make a movie about Napoleon, Stanley Kubrick famously. Uh, all of these, Ridley Scott now at the age of 85 with his epic, I think it's over two and a half hours. Uh, no one here in, in the studio has seen it yet. It hasn't opened here. I don't know if you've seen it, but there is this fascination with uh, the life and it keeps being retold, reimagined, reinvented. Yes, definitely, and uh, usually with, uh, in my opinion, not a whole lot of uh, not a whole lot of success. I, I think Napoleon films don't do a whole lot for me. Maybe it's because of of all all the reasons Joseph and the others have been saying that he 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 is such a propagandist that um, that no no filmmaker can come close to Napoleon himself in uh, in conveying the the supposed grandeur of the man. But um, before uh, we move on, I'd like to I'd, I'd like to talk about his uh, legacy today, pro pro and con, because I think there's something that that hasn't been mentioned yet 
Napoleon, weirdly, has become um, a, a very polarizing figure in the United States uh, of late because uh, he, uh, or at least his government, acting upon his orders, reestablished slavery in, uh, in certain French colonies and, of course, tried to reconquer uh, Haiti, the, the former French colony of Saint-Domingue. And this whole period, this whole episode, uh, has, has really raised serious questions about Napoleon's uh, moral standing, and it's really fueled this debate uh, over Napoleon for or against. It's a whole new dimension. Napoleon, the, the actual restorer of slavery in the Americas, uh, is, is, um, it's a little hard to see both sides of that, that issue. And, of course, that intersects with current uh, debates in the United States. And therefore, Napoleon has really come to crystallize this kind of uh, tension in society today. Hugh, do you think there's a danger that because we had the, the totalitarian, totalitarian dictators of the 20th century, that there's a tendency to read that back then to the 19th century and see Napoleon as a, as a prototype Hitler or Stalin, when actually it's a very different situation. He's a very different character and there, there, there aren't the, the same kinds of, of atrocities and, and, uh, and crimes that we see with Hitler and Stalin. I think that the idea that um, Napoleon embodies some form of totalitarian um, government really goes back again to the French Revolution because there was a book published in the late 40s by a, an Israeli historian, Talmon, on the origins of totalitarian democracy, which traces that back to the French Revolution itself, that you get in the French Revolution a kind of absolutism in the democratic fold which leads towards National Socialism in the 20th century in a very general sort of way. So you could theoretically put Napoleon into that slot, but there's no comparison between the ideology and actions of uh, Napoleon and, say, those of a Hitler or of a Stalin in the 20th century. That said, as Rafe uh, pointed out, um, his record on slavery is poor. He was certainly not a feminist. He was brutal and uh, savage in the way that he allowed his soldiers to enact um, massacres in Egypt when he was there. And he was quite flippant at times about the loss of life of his own armies um, in the European campaign. So there is a very hard side to Napoleon um, as, long, uh, as, as long as long as he was in power. Um, in terms of the sort of totalitarian side, I think the problem there is that it's an extremely broad definition. Um, and for my part, I, I would regard Napoleon as being in a totally different era. And there's a danger of reading too much back into um, uh, from the 20th century backwards. Rafe, there's one thing about Napoleon that really seems striking. He he loved power. He understood how politics worked. He was consumed by the pursuit of power. And that really seemed to, to guide and motivate a lot of his actions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it begins very early in, in his military career. Uh, we remember Napoleon today for his famous battles across Europe, his, his great conquests, leading field armies against the enemies of France. But in fact, Napoleon never saw combat on foreign soil until 1795, 10 years into his military career, and several years after uh, France's wars, uh, revolutionary France's wars with Europe had begun. What Napoleon did during the, the first period of, of the revolutionary wars was he specialized 
in repressing uh, civil disorder and even rebellion within France itself, which is to say that he was a political general long before he was a, uh, a leader of soldiers in combat, uh, which is to say that he was all about power uh, from the beginning. And that's actually how he rises by serving as the revolutionary regime's sword, repressing its internal enemies. It's only in a way, by chance, probably surprising to many people that he also turned out to be a, a great uh, general in the traditional sense. Uh, but uh, until the middle of the Revolutionary Wars, there there was no evidence or sign that that is anything he had in his uh, kit bag. And Joe, how does he rise to power? Is it because he is this talented general? Is it just an element of luck that he's in the right place at the right time because things are kind of going off the rails with the French Revolution? Because it is quite extraordinary how by the age of 30 in 1799, he, he, he is coming to power and then he's able to turn that into an absolute power. Um, yeah, it is. It's a remarkable story. But I mean, um, he's in, in the mid 1790s, he's one of a number of, of uh, you know, very successful young generals who've risen through this new meritocratic uh, revolutionary, vastly expanded revolutionary army. Um, but Napoleon Bonaparte is very lucky in the, in a lot of respects. Uh, there's enormous military talent there, but he 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 manages to to manipulate his successes very well. He makes the right type of connections. He he wages two uh, well one particularly spectacular campaign, which really makes his name in North Italy in 1796, uh, when he takes what is effectively a sideshow in the European theatre of war and turns it into into this spectacular success, which again, he is very skillful in self-publicizing his victories. That He creates two newspapers. Hugh will know an awful lot more about this than I do, but he creates two newspapers, uh, one of which is destined for the French public to to basically sell his achievements in North Italy. Um, So that's a huge success. He then engages on this absolutely uh, extraordinary uh, campaign in Egypt, which ends in disaster. But again, he manages in uh, 1798, 1799 to sort of pose as a, you know, the, 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 a second Caesar, a second Alexander the Great. And this generates uh, extraordinary uh, appeal and interest in, in, in back in France. Uh, so when he returns to France in 1799, he's He's well positioned. He's he's cultivated the right people. He's presented himself as this enlightened uh, military genius, who is uh, in a very strong position as the the existing constitutional framework starts to disintegrate. Um, the, the, as you said, we've had a, at this stage a decade of revolution, and Napoleon presents the image of someone who can deliver um, stability, uh, political. Uh, a political, a clear political authority in place of a fractured body politic, and also he promises peace because peace through victory. He's a man who brings a reputation for for uh, military success, and with that, he promises that uh, his coming to power will will bring an end to the turmoil, both nationally and internationally. Yeah, Sylvie, it's very interesting, Joe, they're mentioning uh, he's one of a number of generals. And I sometimes wonder if Lazare Hosh, Wolftone's friend, hadn't hadn't died, perhaps he might have been the person who had come to prominence because he was also considered this, you know, talented, uh, brilliant general who could lead the people. 
Yes, and I think a very interesting overlap between Franco-Irish history, obviously Tone's career there and the way the French were operating, is that Napoleon, I I think, and I hope Hugh and, and Joseph agree with me, isn't he also in 1799 or the weeks and months building up to it, also selected as a figurehead by, but you could argue even exploited, by a tiny nucleus of decision makers. But in Italy, as Tone and Usher campaigning and pushing for what will be the the failed Bantry campaign to Ireland, in Italy, Napoleon kind of breaks with a tradition and he, he crosses the line between being strictly a soldier and he engages in successful wartime diplomacy in Italy and brokering a peace. So he's a hero at several levels. Um, it is true, had Hosh survived, but on the other hand, if you look at your military history, there are a lot of generals that were very successful. There was Dizex, who Tone meets, who was very temporarily head of the Army of England and in replacement of Napoleon. And there would be, Joseph would know the details better, but in the early 1800s, there was the plan to erect a statue to Dizex, who was you know, a babe who looked more like Joachim Phoenix than Napoleon did, uh, tall and everything, but as a Roman god, kind of naked, I think, in the middle of Paris. And Napoleon said, no way do I want a rival. You know, so there was a whole array of extremely successful generals. Um, So he combines, you know, he becomes a monomyth even only in his lifetime, which which is extraordinary. Um, And... He was, so we know the caricatures indeed, and they're absolutely delightful and wonderful, but he was actually the most represented figure in France. People have compared him, if you were to multiply the images of Jesus Christ, you would have had mugs and coins and emblems, official formal art apart from the, even at at daily level. So people knew what he looked like. And he was more represented. This is before the age of photography. Um, And interestingly, never relaxed and smiling. So that's why I'd vote for Rod Steiger. I think Rod Steiger's interpretation of him, uh, you know, is is a unique one that needs to be up there among the contenders. Very good. And Hugh, it doesn't matter the fact that he was born on Corsica, that uh, in a different age he mightn't even have been part of France. That, uh, that, that did, Was that ever an issue in terms of his rise? No, I think it's one of the keys to Napoleon's personality because uh, a few years earlier and he would have been Italian because Genoa owned Corsica. And the French only took it over a few years before Napoleon was born. But I think Napoleon's Corsican origins are really quite interesting because um, he was sent to boarding school in France, a military boarding school, at the age of nine or ten. And he spent a lot of time, therefore, away from his um, family. And then he went to military college in Paris for a year and then he joined the army. Um, and was stationed down into Valence. But at this stage, he was very much a loner. Um, He was a quiet person, rather gauche, thin, uh, regarded as uh, really not particularly outstanding. He didn't do very well in his exams at military college in, in, in Paris. And when the revolution broke out, Napoleon, first of all, was a Corsican nationalist. He wanted um, Corsican uh, autonomy from France. And it was only when his family was kicked out 
because uh, they were disliked by Pascal Paoli, who was the veteran Corsican nationalist, that he returned to France in 1793 and in the army carried out the um, successful artillery barrage in the siege of Toulon. So if you look at Napoleon up until 1795, he's really rather an obscure figure and a very ambiguous figure. And I think in a way that ambiguity explains much of his actions after 1795 because he was... It turns out a very able military strategist, in fact, a genius in that respect. But in terms of being a Frenchman, he was a very ambiguous Frenchman because in many ways he regarded France as the horse on which he rode to his own personal glory during the period of the empire. If you look at Napoleon's ambitions, they're not particularly French. They're almost personal in the way that he attached himself to some of the basic principles of the revolution and then exported those to the, to the countries that he conquered. And the strategic interests of France probably were much less important than his own ambition. There's that famous saying of him that, Somebody said to him, would you like to be God? And he said, no, that's much too restrictive. In other words, you know, my ambitions go way beyond that. So I think the personality of Napoleon, and particularly as, as um, Susie was saying about the Italian campaign, once that hits, he has a kind of genius in propaganda and military strategy which carry him, carry him on. The Egyptian campaign was a failure, but it created a myth about Napoleon, which, again, is important for his um, later renown. Well, we're talking history and tonight we are talking about the life, legacy and legend of Napoleon Bonaparte. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be talking about his greatest achievements in power and where it all went wrong. So stay with us here. On News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History. Tonight we are looking at the life, legacy and legends of Napoleon Bonaparte. I'm delighted to be rejoined by my panel, Dr. Sylvie Kleinman, Visiting Research Fellow at Trinity College Dublin, Professor Hugh Goff, Emeritus Professor of History at University College Dublin, Dr. Rafe Blaufarb, Ben Weeder, Eminent Scholar in Napoleonic Studies of Florida State University, and Dr. Joseph Clark, the Head of the Department of History at Trinity College Dublin. And Joe, we talked about how he came to power promising peace but he ended up getting many years of war. And why was that? Um, it, well, it, it partly comes back to, to one of the, the points um, Hugh, Hugh made earlier, that the, the, the sort of a... a he, Napoleon represents an unsustainable instability in European politics. Um, so for, for many of the, the other great powers in Europe, he, he, he is part of the legacy of the French Revolution, which they, they, they can't come to terms with they they will briefly at one stage or another but for 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 um for powers like great britain or like austria or, or russia um there's a, a fundamental threat represented by that legacy uh, that revolutionary legacy and of course by by napoleon's uh, military self-aggrandizement as well so that tension is there um Britain is, of course, the irreconcilable enemy. And in a way, this is the closing act of a second hundred years war that has been running throughout the, the, the long 18th century. Um, there's the, the old Franco-Austrian rivalry. Um, it resurfaces under, under the, 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 the Napoleonic period. Um, and of course, there's the other aspect of it as well, which is that Napoleon himself, to a large extent, his his regime, uh, or his own sense of personal glory, uh, that sense of destiny that that um, that he he he's very much driven by, 
it, uh, there's a constant hunger for war there and constant hunger for victory and and for for, for greater glory. So this is a very expansionist regime. Um, he, uh, as, as, as Hugh said, he, he, he doesn't necessarily, he sees France to some extent as a vehicle, but it's a vehicle designed to build a, a greater empire. And so at, at its height, France has expanded to, to basically stretch from the Baltic to the, to the Adriatic. Uh, there, it's ringed by satellite states or, or client states right across, uh, across Europe. Um, so there, there's an insatiability about the regime that, um, that makes peace very difficult. We have, we have brief periods of peace with individual powers, we have a, a brief period with, with Britain after after the the Peace of Amiens. Um, but I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's a real there's a, an inbuilt instability that it's very difficult for him to imagine a uh, retreating back into a domestic sphere, um, and it's very difficult for the other powers in Europe to accept that France will remain this this constant revolutionary threat to their own internal stability and to the the European order and so, so it's it's um that promise that initial promise of peace uh, seems briefly delivered at the very start of his his um his his period as, as first consul um, but I, I think I think there's a ultimately, and you see this playing out at the very end. Ultimately, the great powers of Europe can't really come to terms with Napoleon, and he can't be negotiated with. He'll always he'll always pop up again. And Hugh, we've called him a military genius and described him as that. But what is it possible to actually identify what made him so so great in battles? Because he seemed to sometimes be able to almost read the mind of the opposing general and and anticipate what was going to be done and then uh, work to to counteract it. He also seems to have been great at, uh, at, at uh, directing the morale of his troops and inspiring them on to greater things. But he did achieve some quite extraordinary victories at Austerlitz and uh, until it all went wrong then in the later years. Yes, I think first of all, he inherited an army which had been fighting for three years and in which the terror had eliminated most of the Royalist army officers. So he has new young men of talent he's working with, many of whom will be loyal to him towards the end. His ability appears to have been tactical and strategic, that he was able to envisage the field of battle and work out uh, where his uh, strengths would lie and where the enemy's weakness would operate to keep his units relatively separate until just before the beginning of battle when he'd move them into place and then be able to adapt them once the, 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 the battle was in process. I think it's important, though, to emphasize that he was at his most brilliant up until Austerlitz. After Austerlitz, the uh, toll taken on the army by, for example, the French army trying to conquer Spain, and then the second war against Austria in 1809-1810, and certainly the trip to Moscow, um, the failure of the invasion of Moscow in 1812, takes a huge toll of attrition on his troops and his officers. And the problem is that his armies get bigger. In the, uh, in the campaign in Italy, he has an army of 30,000, 35,000. By the time he goes into Russia, he has about half a million. And to organize and to structure those became more and more difficult with troops who were, for the most part, conscripts from other countries as well as France and officers who were second grade or tired by that stage. The whole thing begins to fade off by then. Now, strategists will tell you that his campaign against the Allied invasion of France in 1814 was at times brilliant. 
but those are the, very much the end games. So here's a man with an exceptionally intelligent mind. He's a very bright man with a strategic uh, ability and a strategic foresight in an army which is pretty experienced by the stage that he comes to power, but which, as time goes by, becomes inflated, bloated, and less and less competent. And Rafe, it's fascinating the way he applies that strategic mind to France internally as well. He brings in the Napoleonic Code. He has a concordat with the with the with the with the Catholic Church, with the Pope. He attempts to build a new social elite in France, and he is he is also interested in in reshaping and transforming France. Yes, absolutely. And uh, this is probably the area where Napoleon's political acumen is most clear. His what he does during the year or two, three after coming to power. What, what he does is he manages to diffuse the major tensions that had been produced by the French Revolution. He comes to power in a country that's bitterly divided. Napoleon identifies the key sources of division and then crafts specific policies that remedy those problems. So clearly, and French revolutionary historians know this really well, the main dividing line in in France, the main cause of discontent with the revolutionary regime um, had been its policies toward the Catholic Church. France is a country that's virtually 100% Catholic, yet the revolutionary regimes adopt policies that are irritating, uh, to say the least, to practicing believing Catholics. Napoleon's predecessors, the various regimes of the revolution, had had stubbornly persisted in anti-Catholic policies. Napoleon realizes that the country will never have stability and thus his power will never be consolidated until he manages to reach, uh, essentially to make peace with the church, which is what he does in the Concordat. And he does it in in such a brilliant way. Not only does his uh, arrangement with the Pope restore Catholic practice without threatening uh, Napoleon's own secular power. It also guarantees this concordat. It guarantees uh, the uh, the material gains that pro-revolutionary people had made uh, during the previous decade when they had bought the, the, uh, the properties of the Catholic Church. That's a sine qua non of Napoleon's a deal with the Pope. Um, the Pope has to accept the loss of all church property. And the Pope, uh, I suppose to his credit, says, well, you know, 30 million souls are, are, are worth uh, some property. And so he signs on the dotted line. But boy, you know, that's, that's just an, in a, um, an example of Napoleon's political genius, killing two birds with one stone, making peace with the Catholic Church and reassuring the French bourgeoisie that had that had purchased church land during the revolution. It's a brilliant stroke, and there are many others like it. And Rafe, there is a real cinematic quality to his life in some of the, the most iconic images of that time. I'm thinking especially of the way he crowns himself emperor. You know, he takes, he seizes the crown, and he's showing to the world that he did this himself. This wasn't something from God or this wasn't uh, something uh, that he was born into, that he was able to make himself emperor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Napoleon is always, always clear about this, even when he does go down the imperial path, uh, crowning himself, as you say, and then creating a nobility 
setting up his family as kings in the various satellite states. But Napoleon, very, very significantly, is always emperor of the French, which is to say his power is his sovereignty extends over the people of France. He is not, unlike the Louis, king of France, which is a different kind of power, a proprietary power that says, this is my personal property, France. In that sense, he remains faithful to the revolution, even even when uh, he makes himself a hereditary sovereign. Sylvie, the movie coming out in, in a few weeks' time, Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon. Uh, my issue, I suppose, with Joaquin Phoenix, even though he is brilliant, is that he's the age now that Napoleon was uh, uh, at a, on St. Helena. Uh, he's 49. I think Napoleon died at 52. He's he's a, a much older figure than the figure who was crowning himself emperor in 1804. And uh, again, Vanessa Kirby, who's quite brilliant, is Josephine, but in real life she was older than than Napoleon, but here she's, she's quite a few years younger. Maybe that doesn't matter, but it is interesting the way, I suppose, the people who you cast in these shapes your image of them then. Well, you know, we need a life because we're historians. And... They said it's not a biopic. Phoenix himself said to people going to see the film, well, you know, it's not a true biopic. You're going to have to do your own reading. There are bound to be distortions. And the fact that the actress who's been chosen to play Josephine is actually about 14 years younger than her husband when Josephine was six years older than Napoleon. That's only one aspect. The real Josephine was a tiny bit photoshopped in the paintings. She was a little bit plainer. Her appeal and her charm to people who met her in court was were her manners, her kindness. Uh, now, you know, the credit cards were overheating. She was in debt to I don't know how many glovers and jewelry makers and cashmere shawl providers. Um, but Josephine had a character. And I think one of the things, is it possible for Napoleon to have become such a legend had there not been this human side to him, that he was defeated by this not powerful woman, by this not young and beautiful woman and who couldn't produce an heir. So when I worked out all the arithmetic, Josephine was six years older than Napoleon. But Napoleon himself was only six years older than Jane Austen. And I like using that as a trigger. He was a true romantic. And letters have survived. There's one letter where he, he writes to Josephine, a thousand daggers pierce my heart. Do not push them in any further. Now, so far, there's been something absent in all of this. So in the previous discussions, how can we explain the fall of Napoleon, Napoleon's defeat? The might of the British Empire was you know, growing and growing, and, and it was financed, it was military. But when you look at the life of the Duke of Wellington, who's the same age as Napoleon, born the same year, you know, the story of his sad love affair with Kitty Pakenham, it's not anywhere near as famous, but it shows these people were human and they were also trying maybe to choose matches where they could be happy. And we know a lot about that. So it's part of the public story of Napoleon. Now, how it's going to be rendered on film, you know, uh, Vanessa Kirby's also very barbied up. She's a 
perfect face. She's caked with eye makeup. You know, she looks like a little punk, you know, about to go rollerblading or something. But I think the romantic side to Napoleon somehow endears him. There's a human side to him. But he still ditched uh, Josephine because she wasn't producing a male heir for him. So the romance dies in the end. Well, we know about this particular power couple, but, you know, and how many others, you know, you know, there were even beyond France. So that's part of a tragedy. You see, it's part of a human tragedy as well, uh, because he very much regrets it. And all this is public, you know, all this is embarrassing, but it's all public even then as it was happening. So I think there's a potent mix there. And Joe, it does all go wrong after the invasion of Russia and he's he's deposed and he goes into exile on, on Elba. But then he does have that dramatic return and it ends in defeat at Waterloo. But I wonder, was it always doomed to failure, that return, because things had changed? Uh, there wasn't going to be, although he was greeted by the crowds and one of his former generals switched sides and joined his forces. But I, I wonder how difficult would it have been, even if he had won at Waterloo to to continue on. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 you're right. Uh, Marshal Ney leaves Paris promising, uh, promising the restored Bourbon monarch that he's going to bring back Napoleon in a cage. And he, he goes off, meets Napoleon and... and Rejoins, rejoins the old troop, so uh, the, the gang's back together again. Uh, but yeah, it, it's doomed. Um, the the great powers who are meeting uh, in, in in Vienna, the moment they hear Napoleon has has, has left his 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 exile um, on Elba, yeah, it's it's just a matter of time at that stage. He has. Um, uh, he manages, as 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 you mentioned earlier, he manages to stage some really important. Uh, uh, minor enough victories in in eighteen fourteen, uh, but you know, that's by the time the British and Prussian forces are able to muster their strength against him. That the you know he's he's got a depleted army. He he he's done very well, but it's only a matter of time. So that the hundred days that experiment is is uh, is absolutely doomed. It's also. Um, He's also had to make an awful lot of concessions to to France uh, in order to try and re-establish himself. So he's 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 uh, you know, toying with the left and he's trying to re-establish his republican credentials. And and that again that points to a, a slight degree of desperation. So there's there's a, a degree of, of inevitability about the being shipped off across the Channel on the Bellerophon and and uh, and then ultimately down down to, uh, to that very grim exile in in Santa Lina. Well, we're talking history and we are talking about the life of Napoleon Bonaparte. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be discussing the legacy of Napoleon and also asking whether we expect our historical films to be historically accurate or not. That's all coming up after this. Welcome back. We're talking history and we are talking about the life, legacy and legend of Napoleon Bonaparte. I'm rejoined by my expert panel, Dr. Sylvie Kleinman, Visiting Research Fellow at Trinity College Dublin, Professor Hugh Goff, Emeritus Professor of History at University College Dublin, Dr. Rafe Blaufarb, Ben Weeder, Eminent Scholar in Napoleonic Studies at Florida State University, and Dr. Joseph Clark, the Head of the Department of History at Trinity College Dublin. 
Sylvie, maybe a question about historical representations of figures like Napoleon. Do we expect the movies to be historically accurate? Because Ridley Scott has been reacting quite aggressively to the criticisms of historians saying that, you know, well, were they there? Were you there? And if not, then you should F off. So as far as Ridley Scott is concerned, historians should butt out and let the filmmakers tell their stories. Well, the problem for historians is that when you get a historical film, it often triggers something in the popular mind and they want to learn more about it. So as soon as the film is out, you're going to get Google questions. You know, did Napoleon really, you know, comb his hair this way? People are going to become curious about history. But when they are fed with a historical film that has inaccuracies, I just think it's unfortunate. Now, apparently there won't be too many. The one thing we need to remember is that this is not a film about, and there's some horrific scenes when they're in Moscow and the Moscow campaign, you know, is is just from the point of view of the ordinary soldier, that might get people thinking about the reality of war. But this is also a film about celebrity culture, you know, about a monomyth, as I said, a hero in his own lifetime. And and the coronation, the trappings, the spectacle, everyone was saying, oh, you know, all this secularism in the 18th century, we want spectacle. And, you know, they were reinventing furniture, indoor design when they come back from Egypt. So it's very, very glamorous. And on the screen, the costumes, the, 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 the insides that we're going to see, apart from the military, it's going to be extraordinary viewing. You know, this isn't about soldiers sitting around the campfire, you know, in the, wearing filthy clothes, the same uniform they've worn for three years, which is what they would say. You know, it's, you know, it's celebrity culture. There's a wow factor to it. So academic historians always have to accept, you know, we see it on TV. On the other hand, it keeps a conversation going. And there's a very big conversation out there. Ridley Scott, you know, the ripples. uh, And we haven't even seen the film yet. So we just have to wait and see. Yeah, like Hugh, I do wonder if Ridley Scott does have a point when he tells the historians to get a life because, you know, historians ruin the the viewing pleasure of a movie by always pointing out, oh no, the person wouldn't have combed their hair that way or he didn't fire the cannon at the at the pyramids in Egypt as, as uh, is shown in the trailer and that's what's infuriated some people. So, you know, maybe historians just have to accept that this isn't a, an academic monograph. It is ultimately entertainment for the public. I think we historians have a life, quite an enjoyable one. And to be slightly um, iffy about factual accuracy, I don't think that's a particular sin. Um, I remember Sophie, was it Sophie Coppola's uh, film on Marie Antoinette, which was also a piece of frivolous rubbish, dressed up in um, fine uniform. And I do fear that there's a, a danger of, uh, because I haven't seen it yet, of the Napoleon, but I certainly will see it, of the Napoleon film being the same. I think the problem is that if you look at, at history as a load of facts, sort of just aligned up, that's not what history is. In the end, history is the way in which, with a certain number of tools, we try and interpret the past. And we all get a picture 
of the past, which may be different from the next person. So there are biographies of Napoleon, which are widely varying in the way they look at his personality and the way they look at his effects. So historians are quite well capable of getting a grasp of a topic and putting a particular imprint on it. I accept that cinema is a very different medium and that you need to do certain things in cinema that you don't have to do on paper. But at the same time, I do think you have to have a certain um, a certain affinity with factual accuracy. If somebody turned up with a, uh, a film on Hitler, which emphasized the romantic attachments with Eva Brown and how perfectly nice a man he was in, in private, um, I think the public will be really offended by that. Or uh, a film of Putin about his physical valor and his ability to row through icy water bare-chested, I think people would have difficulty with that. So I don't think that film directors should tell historians to get a life. Otherwise, historians might retaliate with similar insults. Very good. And Rafe, you've mentioned that you're not really enthusiastic about uh, the film because of the way, perhaps for the, those same points, that uh, the way sometimes the story is simplified and uh, you don't get the real complexity of the, the historical figure and what was happening. Well, actually, like Sylvie, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm withholding my judgment because I haven't seen it. And like you, I'm not really concerned with uh, the factual details that some of the critiques of the trailer have been talking about, whether this particular thing happened in this particular way. To me, that doesn't really, that's not history, as Hugh says. What, what we do as historians ultimately is the same thing that Ridley Scott is doing. We're telling stories. We're telling stories just like he is. And for me, the real thing I'm waiting to see with this film is how Ridley Scott integrates the factual narrative, the grand narrative, Austerlitz, the seizure of power, whatever, that we all know about and that apparently he respects, with the, the narrative of the Napoleon-Josephine relationship, which even though we do have a fair amount of evidence about it, we really don't know what their relationship was like. We weren't, we weren't there. Um, and so in a way, there are two parallel stories. There's a basic factual framework. And then there's the focus, I believe, from what I've heard of the film, which is uh, this relationship. And I'm very curious to see how Ridley Scott integrates these and weaves them together so that the one is uh, enhancing uh, the other. Um, That would be, to me, the test of whether this is a great film or not. Joe, are you looking forward to seeing the film? I'm absolutely looking forward to it. Um, Ridley Scott's a great director. He's got a very good cast. It looks, from the trailer, it looks uh, conceived on a spectacular scale. And, I mean, this this isn't the first time Ridley Scott has tackled Napoleon. His his career is bookended by films about the Napoleonic period. His very first film, his first uh, movie is The Duelists, which has Harvey Keitel as this this sort of Napoleon. It's set during the Napoleonic Wars. It's this epic saga of a a long-running duel between two French officers with Harvey Keitel, who was the ideal Napoleonic figure, um, cast in that role. So... Ridley Scott has clearly been mulling this over for most of his career. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't see it as work. This will be just, this will be going to a good, mo- uh, hopefully a good movie and um, sit, sit back and, and enjoy it. It's, um, and if it, if it generates more interest in Napoleon uh, and, the, and that period of history, if it, um, if it gets people going out and reading any of those innumerable biographies that are produced about Napoleon, 
that's great. That's good news. That's um, that's uh, that's that's positive for for the discipline. Positive for for that wider discussion about this period and its its lasting legacy for for not just for France but for Europe as a whole. And indeed, as, as Rafe mentioned earlier, those wider debates about Napoleon's um, Napoleon's far more problematic legacy in in the Caribbean are indeed, you know, his you know the the, the impact of, of sort of European colonization in, in the global south because that Egyptian campaign is, is sets a lot of precedence in that respect as well. So the, there's a lot to, to to discuss about Napoleon. There always has been, and hopefully this this film will will open up new directions in that conversation. And Rafe, what's becoming clear from the discussion is that he is the perfect figure. He is the perfect subject for this kind of historical debate because you can argue you know, elements from the life to to make completely contradictory points. He is this kind of contradictory figure because you've shown his his position on slavery and reintroducing that, but in other areas he's a liberator. He is the person who is winning these great military victories, but then he is also turning the countries into these satellite states. He is he is a, a man of contradictions and 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 it allows you to argue the different sides of it then, uh whether with students or with your friends or uh, even in your own head. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's true. He, he, he does seem to be a man of contradictions, although I suspect that in his own mind, he did not see any of his actions as contradictory. Napoleon is a timely subject because he is the archetypal great man. As Hugh said, there's no one else, uh, there's no one else like him, and he sort of sets the model of that kind of individual, larger-than-life figure, the Ubermensch, as Sylvie said, who strides across the pages of history, shaping things. Um, you know, in academic history, um, the idea of great men, great man history, has really uh, hasn't fared very well for the last <laughs> half century, at least. Um, but actually, I think maybe it's time to reconsider that, because if we look around the world today, um, there are a lot of uh, would-be great men. Um, we, we can see uh, various leaders in, in, in various countries who are, tr- who are trying to do exactly that. They're trying to take history in their hands and shape it, and often in very self-serving and self-contradictory ways. Um, so maybe Napoleon is a lesson to us academic historians that maybe we were a little too quick to dismiss uh, the great man uh, uh, in, in, in favour of kind of broader social and cultural approaches to our subject. OK, well, I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to my brilliant panel of experts, Dr Sylvie Kleinman, Visiting Research Fellow at Trinity College Dublin, Professor Hugh Goff, Emeritus Professor of History at University College Dublin, Dr Rafe Blaufarb, uh, Ben Weeder, Eminent Scholar in Napoleonic Studies at Florida State University, and Dr Joseph Clark, the Head of the Department of History at Trinity College Dublin. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to Kathleen Keane, who produced the show tonight, my regular series producer Marisa Sullivan and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.